1971, the now infamous Stanford Prison Experiment was conducted. 24 adult men, college students, all physically and mentally healthy, were recruited. Half were assigned to act as prisoners, and half as prison guards. The setting of the simulation was meant to emulate a realistic prison environment, and the prisoners were stripped, deloused, washed, and given emasculating prison gowns before being assigned a number and placed in their cells. The guards were given no specific training on how to be guards, but were instead encouraged to make up their own set of rules, which would then be carried out under the supervision of an assigned warden. All guards were dressed in identical uniforms and carried a whistle and billy club. Notably, all guards wore special sunglasses, which had reflective lenses that prevented anyone from seeing their eyes or reading their emotions, promoting anonymity. The simulation was scheduled as a two-week study to observe psychological changes that might occur, but the behavior of the guards became so sadistic and the prisoners' mental health so compromised that the study was concluded in just six days. A key tool used to turn play-acting prison guards into abusive monsters? Mirrored sunglasses. I'm Ryan Nelson, and welcome to Conspiracy Theoryology. Welcome back, Theoryologists, and howdy. How you doing? I hope everyone is healthy and well, physically, mentally, emotionally. I thought about y'all a lot, and it has been a long year so far. I mean, for many, the world seems to have lost its mind. For others, the world has become a very threatening and scary place. Society is under attack and under upheaval from both a quote-unquote natural public health emergency and social unrest born of long-simmering civil rights concerns and race relations here in the U.S. Ultimately, theories abound as to the cause, purpose, and even understanding of this all-out assault on society. I'm sure you're wondering if we are diverging from the typical format to voice concerns on either the public health emergency or to make a personal stand on the modern civil rights movement occurring in one way or another. Well, I prefer to think that I've managed to stay true to the intent of conspiracy theoryology while making a timely episode addressing current events. In fact, there is a conspiracy for us to consider. Throughout the last six to seven months, theories have surfaced in attempt to explain events not only as they have occurred, but in relation to everything else preceding it this year. Attempts are being made at explaining the origins and distribution of the SARS-CoV-2 virus at the heart of the COVID-19 outbreak. Questions abound as to the accuracy of testing, tracking, and reporting of infection and deaths. Then, when it felt like we'd had enough, a poor excuse for a police officer, either with murderous intent or through sheer incompetence, took aggressive and brutal action during a questionable arrest that led to the death of a black man in Minneapolis. We are all trying to understand why and what it means for societal advancement. How much improvement has actually been made in race relations, if any? 
if something like this can happen? Well, there are a lot of questions that can come out of everything that's happened in 2020. But most poignantly, why, why these events, in contrast to any other health emergency or civil rights violation that has occurred over the last several decades, why have they managed to ignite a powder keg of social unrest, demonstration, and resistance? I'm going to attempt to aggregate the various theories that have surfaced, connecting the dots into a single cohesive theory that seems to reflect the opinions of those questioning the narrative. Additionally, we can discuss some derivatives, some derivations from this to consider other narratives that might be more palatable for others. First, let's look at the conspiracy theory, the full-bodied, you know, full-flavored conspiracy theory. And listen to this. See how this plays out in your mind. The collapse of 2020 seems all too orchestrated and well-planned. Those that have longed for a breakdown of social order so that it could be replaced by a controlling regime of corporate influence and deep state governance via a one-world government needed a catalyst for social unrest and upheaval that would require overwhelming political suppression. The racial divide makes a perfect well from which to draw. Instigate, stage, and highly publicize a case of police brutality to provocate social retaliation. But how to ensure widespread response to the event? Clearly, racial tensions and conflicts have occurred in the recent years, yet reactions are often localized and quickly subside as the 24-hour news cycle moves to the next topic du jour. The public psychology must be altered and people agitated and frustrated to a boiling point. A global crisis must be created that could create a prepared atmosphere of tension, blame, fear, and anxiety. It must also allow for the governments to impose restrictions upon the population that inhibit movement and commerce. The answer to that is quite simple. In 2017, the restriction on gain-of-function research, including that on the SARS virus, is lifted, allowing for the accelerated development of next-generation virus mutations, developed specifically to observe how the virus may infect humans in the future. The need for secret keeping is kept minimal as the research is public knowledge, federally funded, and even encouraged as a benefit to public health. It was a simple matter for a developed viral mutation, once identified, to be released casually into the public. And perhaps it was a matter of waiting for the release to occur accidentally through a lack of proper security. Once released, media focus and constantly shifting guidance and information from authorities will do the rest. The public reaction to pandemic restrictions is well documented in the U.S. following the Spanish flu outbreak. History repeats itself and can be helped along with constant alarmist streams of information. By May of 2020, the public psyche in the U.S. was at its breaking point. The catalyst was then introduced, George Floyd. Okay, you can see that. This is a well-planned, well-orchestrated, many cooks in the kitchen approach. And I've heard this in some form or fashion in bits and pieces as time has progressed. The, the narrative has evolved as the year has unfolded. But let's consider a second option, something much more organic in the making. The idea that 
a larger plan might be implemented simply by taking opportunity at naturally occurring random events. Sort of a opportunity theory. Imagine our previous scenario without as much hands-on implementation. SARS-CoV-2, whether born of gain-of-function research in a BSL-4 facility or entirely through natural mutation in the wild, made for a perfect scapegoat to implement martial levels of social control and constraints. It was clearly observed in the early months while spreading through China, and it was only once determined to be more virulent than SARS and MERS, with a capability to spread globally, that the narrative was changed from one of mild concern and immigration control in most of the West to that of alarm and lockdown. The reporting of deaths, which were neither considered nor investigated in 2019, while the virus was first surfacing, suddenly skyrocketed and every death remotely possible at the hands of COVID-19 as a reported and confirmed uh, death was then ascribed. Lockdowns, quarantines, closures, gathering restrictions, supply shortages, and the like were guaranteed outcomes as federal, state, and local agencies tried to address the infection in their communities. Anytime the public concern began to wane, more symptoms were added to the list of probable indicators. Three more were added this week by the CDC, just in case you didn't know, and recommendations turned into requirements. Activities and events that promoted social unity and reduced stress were shut down, such as community groups, churches, sporting events, spas, and restaurants. In contrast, liquor stores and shipping services were kept open, leading to massive increases in alcohol consumption and increased spending in the form of retail therapy. It would take very few within the circle of conspiracy, if correctly positioned, to encourage a descent into financial crisis family and community tension, and resistance from even the most law-abiding of citizens. Within this opportunity theory was simply to take a well-timed, violent altercation between the police and someone from the African-American community and make it a national event. It really didn't have to even be racially motivated. That it includes a, a white cop and a black civilian would be more than enough to spark reaction. Websites like CopCrisis.com have been tracking brutality reports for years, and in the age of social media, when the public provides immediate news coverage unlike any time in history, it was just a waiting game. The public was already primed, people already distrustful of each other over face masks and adequate social distancing, not to mention toilet paper hoarding, were ready to turn on each other in the matter of a racial divide. Okay. That's the opportunity theory. But how about a third one? Finally, let's take the conspiratorial out of the theory entirely. I call this the happenstance theory. Now, it is simply a matter of very real issues causing very real fear and anxiety simply because pandemics have been a very real threat to the public consciousness for a long time. With false starts over the last several decades, an indicator that it wasn't a matter of if, but when. As well, the racial divide in America is palpable. Identity politics, race politics, the militarization of law enforcement, and yes, some very real racial discrimination and crime from remnants of bigotry and white supremacy that have never fully been eliminated. Just as with a viral infection, racially motivated attacks and deaths have occurred 
which spurred riots, protests, marches, and demonstration over the years. It was clear that eventually an event would occur that would spread throughout Main Street, USA. There doesn't need to be a conspiracy necessarily in all this. Those that stand to profit from drug and vaccine development or gain power through centralized government control and racial tension simply take advantage of the situation. All right, so those are the three scenarios I could envision when considering everything that has occurred in the first half of 2020, and I'm sure there are many variations within all three. Still, I think they capture the major points of perspective. The key point with all three scenarios, though, something had to change the public psychology to make these events feed each other. Whether a hand was at play every step of the way, or it's been simply a series of unfortunate events, something was different. That difference, I think, was face masks. If you need some evidence, just go look at the U.S. news reports, or check your social media feed, from the U.S. president on down to the local grocery store shopper. The discussion is face masks. If you want to see why people are unfollowing and unfriending each other on social media, apparently face masks are the final straw in most online relationships. But how are masks unifying the two seemingly disparate events? Well, seriously, though, I, I know it's a weird claim to make. Of all the issues surrounding the COVID outbreak, or the civil rights uprising that has followed the murder of George Floyd, it certainly sounds tactless to point to masks as being the singular magic bullet in this discussion. But it is. Masks have a profound psychological effect on people, which we will discuss. Suffice to say, it is the face mask usage that has detached individuals from others around them, emboldening them to attack each other as uncaring and heartless or as mindless sheep. It is masks that gave people the perception of control enough to head to the streets, carrying pent-up anger and frustration, to face down police, tear down statues, defy authorities, and call for the breakdown of our societal structure. It is because of the pandemic and the masking of the public that the death of George Floyd set America on fire like no other in recent years. Before we go any farther with trying to explain that um, and understand that in that context, we have to talk about what we mean with the impact and the psychological effect of face masks. So let's move right into the theoriology and begin to understand that. Face masks have a tremendous psychological influence. Some of that plays out in our risk management. We fear unknown risks until we grow comfortable with those risks. And risk creates anxiety, which makes us desperate to attain some semblance of control. Well, this, this psychological phenomenon is known as the illusion of control. And it is often exhibited by strange decisions based on our perceived level of control. For example, research shows most people think they are less likely to get into an accident when driving a car as opposed to uh, being the passenger. Being in the driver's seat makes people think that they can prevent accidents themselves, even though it doesn't really guarantee this at all. The statistics and probability of car accidents are unchanged whether you are the driver or the passenger. 
Another example like that is the false perception held that picking your own lottery numbers rather than drawing randomly will increase the chance of success. Now, there's another aspect besides the illusion of control that masks have, and that is in regards to empathy. Now, there was a 2013 study on the effects of face masks on empathy between doctors and patients that concluded that this study demonstrates that when doctors wearing a face mask during consultations has a significant negative impact on the patient's perceived empathy and diminishes the positive effects of relational continuity. Consideration should be taken in planning appropriate use of face masks in infectious disease policy for primary care and other healthcare professionals at a national, local, and practice level. This reduced empathy makes us less generous. In another example of the impact of sunglasses, an experiment in 2010 designed to evaluate the effects of sunglasses on moral behavior found that participants wearing sunglasses were significantly less generous. A group of 80 volunteers were divided, with half wearing dark sunglasses and half wearing clear lensed glasses. Each person was given $6 to split between themselves and some anonymous partner they were told is, were sitting in another room. Those with the clear lenses divided up the funds almost in half on average, 50-50, at $2.71 to the other person. While the sunglasses wearing misers only gave $1.81 to the other person. That's a 15% difference just because of the anonymity provided by sunglasses, which leads to the third aspect of mask impact, the concept of disinhibition. Now, I've got a word for you here. It's Maskenfreiheit. <laughs> and we know we love our, our fun German words here, right? But roughly translated, you can think of that as the freedom that comes from wearing a literal mask. This introduces an anonymity that counters a psychological behavior known as masking, in which someone disguises their true personality in order to fit into our social environment. Think of the introvert that gets picked on for being antisocial and, consequently, behaves outgoing and extroverted to fit in, even though this behavior is exhausting and even damaging to the individual. This freedom, of course, of Maskenfreiheit goes both ways and can lead to good or ill. So let's look at what disinhibition is, which is really the ill of Maskenfreiheit. Unrestrained behavior resulting from a lessening or loss of inhibitions or a disregard of cultural constraint. Now, this lack of restraint manifests in several ways, including affected motor skills, as well as emotional, cognitive, and perceptual aspects of behavior. Ultimately, masks make it harder for you to be identified. They conceal your emotions and reduce the amount of eye contact you make. They let you feel and think like a different person. They help you avoid guilt, shame, and embarrassment, and bring to the surface parts of your personality you might otherwise hide. Even more so, in groups, masks can be dehumanizing 
leading to groupthink and extreme behavior. Do you need some examples? Well, I thought about that. I wanted for myself to come up with some examples that of this and and to realize that that this disinhibition that comes from this maskenfreiheit, this masking of our personalities is uh applied not only to physical, real, tangible masks, but um, even metaphorical masks. So let's think about something like road rage for you to get an understanding of what, what's happening psychology, right? Driving is anonymous. You're seated safely behind a windshield, behind locked doors. With any amount of salty language or obscene gesturing as fair game, Right, judgments are bestowed upon the skill and character of other drivers around us freely and without consequence. Now, this isn't some masking effect behavior, you say, right? But how many times have we all witnessed or at least seen video of an altercation ensuing from a moment of road rage? That moment a person steps from a vehicle and the road rager is confronted, that veil of unrestrained behavior evaporates usually replaced by fear, embarrassment, and a fight-or-flight response in the face of conflict. So, road rage is a wonderful example of how masks change behavior and, and cause us to behave in ways that we would not. Imagine road rage on a sidewalk. <laughs> While you're out walking the dog, it doesn't happen. Not like that. Road rage is very unique. But there's another example. Social media trolling, right? That road rage is not the only real world example. When the same behavior is exhibited off the road and behind a computer screen rather than a car windshield, we call it trolling. Social media trolling and online bullying occurs behind the mask of anonymity of usernames and profiles or simply through perceived anonymity because the recipient can't discover more information than we have provided. Go back through your social media feeds and look at the comments you've seen played out over the past few months. Masks are powerful things. And now that we have an understanding of these psychological effects attributed to masks, this this reduction in empathy, this illusion of control, and the disinhibition that masks cause, let's look at that Stanford prison experiment, which can be seen with greater understanding and perspective. While there were many aspects at play in the ultimate descent into human depravity, it's the masking effect from multiple sources that can help explain the behavior of participants. The inmates themselves were given demeaning uniforms and assigned numbers while being stripped of their name and personal identities. The dehumanizing groupthink behavior attributed to masks is clearly seen in their behavior. As for the guards, it was the disinhibition of behavior that came through in these students. The anonymity of reflective sunglasses, the illusion of control while holding a nightstick, and the surfacing of personality traits that would otherwise have remained subdued. Could the experiment have concluded differently had the guards been given some level of guidance and training prior to the experiment? Well, almost certainly the answer is yes. Thankfully, most prisons are run with a much greater appreciation and understanding of behavioral psychology 
and aspects of staff-prisoner relationships, in part, I'm sure, thanks to experiments such as the Stanford study. But let's go back. Now let's, let's look through the masks, and let's look at the events of 2020 through this lens of, of masking. Let's start with COVID. The appearance of a novel coronavirus and, of course, that subsequent outbreak of the illness that came to be known as COVID-19 has been swift and scary for 2020. Though not unprecedented, mind you, it has been decades since a truly global pandemic of this type uh, of infection has occurred. With it came many unknowns. How did it start? What's its severity? What's its virulence and speed of spread? And ultimately, questions of whether or not we as individuals would get sick or if it would be fatal. None of this is that familiar a risk for the general population, with the exception of parts of the world that struggle with disease on a daily basis. This increased unfamiliar risk leads to anxiety, as is evident with constant media coverage and shifting warnings and guidelines from public authorities. Just as in the driving example, or selecting lottery numbers, we searched for a means of gaining control, even if only conceptually. Masks, long held as ineffectual and not recommended, suddenly shifted. They gave us a tool to fight back. Just like driving the car rather than being a passenger, we gain the illusion of control by donning face masks. But what of the protest and the police brutality? How does that look through the mask? Well, the militarization of police forces began in the U.S. as early as the 1920s and 30s to counter the rise of organized crime that blossomed under prohibition. And again in the 1950s and 60s in response to escalating anti-war protests and civil rights demonstrations. Increased weaponry has its impact, certainly. But it has been the introduction of riot gear, including face shields, gas masks, and tinted visors that have resulted in a psychological impact. Think of that study referencing doctor-patient interaction. Those face shields on the police reduce the public perceptions towards the officers. Additionally, the mask effect disinhibits officers, just like those college students during the prison experiment. But the, uh, the police are not the only ones impacted by masks. Protesters and demonstrators have been donning masks for centuries. And of course, masks are often worn to prevent immediate identification and provide a level of anonymity, which would be considered invaluable for those speaking out against a ruling authority. In recent history, though, masks have become more than just a means of anonymity, evolving to become a required uniform. And even a calling card, groups associated with Antifa movement wear black face masks that have become their calling card. This use of masking as a means of identifying members of a movement leads to, what we learn groupthink, and extreme behavior. That same effect is felt by those now that have been wearing masks for several months as it has become acceptable behavior in pandemic response. Maskenfreiheit has been in full effect for some time on both sides of this issue. It's hard to decide which came first or caused the other. Suffice to say, it has escalated to a point primed for ignition. 
the addition of mask demonstrators that, but for COVID fears, would not be sporting face coverings, seems to have unraveled the final threads of empathy and inhibition. Combine that with decades of identity politics, continued issues in race relations, and a growing perception of one-sided police action targeting the black community, and this slow-burning fuse has finally reached its end. Now, it could seem tempting to leave this episode with that thought, a cliffhanger as inciting and controversial as the topics themselves. I could probably get more downloads by doing so. Instead, though, let's try some positive perspective. Perhaps these issues in light of new information can be addressed with renewed clarity. Infectious disease is a serious matter, which is something I think most would readily admit. Control and reduction of transmission is clearly the primary concern for the general public and the medical professionals. And recommendations for limited public activity, exposure, and calls to self-monitor are no doubt well intended. But then there are face masks. Recommended on flimsy research and statements like, they might not help, but they can't hurt. That doesn't fit in with the heavily supported recommendations of hand washing and physical distancing. That disparity alone, though, does not condemn the intent. Rather, it's the implication that the only recourse for breaking protocol is death. The public perception that COVID equals near certain death for ourselves or those around us by our heartless irresponsibility has caused a profound irrational response to an unknown risk. The public shut down. People locked themselves down at levels beyond most stay-at-home protocols required, although some cities implemented draconian guidelines out of the gate. Even with many places beginning reopening processes, authorities still cautioned for vigilance. Here's where the masks mess things up. The fear and anxiety had become so elevated that people were not willing to restart their lives without some sense and semblance of control. The face masks provided that illusion of control that removed enough perception of risk that people would venture back out into the world. The problem is that it provides too much of that sense of control. The other recommendations become secondary. I don't have to worry about being in a large crowd because I have my mask. I am protected. I am in control. I am disinhibited in my actions. Okay, so maybe no one is thinking that verbatim, but it's fun to think that they are. If authorities want the public to again act with a bit of reservation and caution, simply start telling people that masks do not provide the level of protection or reduction in transmission originally thought. As soon as the masks come off, that illusion of control will vanish. The public will behave as they always have during something like cold and flu season, washing hands, staying home when sick, and keeping their distance from those that exhibit symptoms, in general, being responsible for their actions. But what of the protests and the police action? How can that be diffused? Well, first, police and protesters both need to come out from behind their masks. Though I'm hesitant to suggest anything that would put our law enforcement men and women into harm's way, the protections afforded by face shields and gas masks may be causing more damage than any nightstick or rubber bullet ever could. If you want the public to remember that you are people too, they need to see people, not layers of armor. 
not unless absolutely necessary. Likewise, demonstrators need to take off the face masks, homemade or otherwise. Importantly, you have to do it by choice. Wear your ideology as part of your identity, not hidden separately. Anti-masking laws have been implemented for decades, and the status of such laws varies by state and country as they've been tried and decided through the legal systems. Help your message by reminding authorities and law enforcement that you are there to give voice to change and to change the system by using the system. Show the police that they are protecting people, not faceless mobs. And guess what? Those groups of agitators and agents of chaos that are not actually interested in your cause will continue to wear their masks, and they will be easy to spot and easy to remove. In the end, Maskenfreiheit and the psychological power of masks cannot take all the blame for a world in turmoil. There is no easy, one-step answer. Masks come in many forms, many less tangible. Perhaps, though, if we are cognizant of the effect that our masks have on ourselves and others around us, be it face masks, uniforms, and computer screens, we won't let them continue to reveal the ugliest sides of our society. Now, if it all sounds, after this discussion, like simple psychology can explain what happened, and it's just unfortunate that a tool for keeping people safe and healthy has an unintended side effect, consider the possibility that it may not be unintended. I know, we're, we're moving back into uh, the, the, the conspiratorial possibilities, but knowing all this now, I certainly would make sure, if I wanted to instigate a breakdown of society, that everyone was in masks for the foreseeable future. Okay, <laughs> you know, that's going to be enough social agitation for today, theoriologists. But what do you think of face masks given the this psychological perspective? Has it changed your perception or confidence in their use? Or were you already against them and now have a different idea as to why they bothered you? And don't think the irony isn't lost on me. You know, I'm, I'm nestled here comfortably behind a microphone, anonymous to a global audience. I know there is a level of disinhibition involved in my willingness to question the narrative and put my perspective on masks out there to the public. But I'd like to remove that anonymity. So let's not be strangers. Touch base with me and let me know what you think about this. The Facebook group is a great place to explore the topic more. Or email me, contact at conspiracytheoryology.com. Believe me, I'd love to talk to you more about this and hear your perspective. You can always find me on the socials too, at TheoryologyPod. All the info, as usual, can be found at conspiracytheoryology.com, including how to support the show on Patreon and links to the merchandise store for t-shirts and goodies. And don't forget to share the show with others. Even if for this episode you just want to share it to let other people just gasp in horror at the suggestion of, of dropping face masks. <laughs> now music is by adamhenrygarcia.bandcamp.com. So, to wrap it up, until next time, remember, beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology. Thank you.